Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Rodney Cobb. Rodney is currently a principal cloud engineer at Remind, Inc., and joins us from Miami, Florida. Rodney Cobb, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? For me, they usually fall into three verticals, things that are repeatable, testable, and scalable. Those are usually the most resilient um, systems, and then also, too, the best to really innovate with as well. Um, But you have to, in all three of those verticals, it not only permeates through software, it permeates through your whole kind of context of your organization, right? So having things be scalable not only works when we're talking about a piece of Python code or a React Native app, but also, too, when it comes to documentation, when it comes to core work hours, you name it. Having having everything that you do inside those three verticals really is a great way to to scale up in, in so many different facets. You know, it's interesting you're talking about how in the organization level, documentation, work hours, is there a sense of, is, does that lead to something like having a better sense of predictability or you can make safer assumptions because of that consistency? Well, I think um, you can make safer assumptions as to morale, as to work-life balance, as to mental wealth of your engineering team. I think over this past year, we've really been forced to kind of delve more into the mental wealth of engineers, which we probably should have been doing all along, right? Like, <laughs> you know, it took, it took this pandemic to kind of force us to see that, hey, you know, engineer, your engineering team does not need to be grinded down in that way. They, they actually do need, you know, mental health days. Uh, so um, a lot of companies I know of, they practice one mental health day a week. In my opinion, you know, America should go to the European model and go to a four-day work week. But that's just me. Those facets really become predictors in, and give you some good mat, uh, uh, data points, metrics on saying, hey, you know what, we have a release coming up at the end of this two-week sprint. We know it's going to be extremely taxing and it's going to take a lot away from, you know, the team's time. However, because we do have built-in mental health days, because we do tell people, hey, step away from your terminal to go have dinner with your family, you can get, get a very good predictor in quality of work, right? So it's a difference between being done and being good. And I think that that those aspects, especially, like I said, the mental health aspect and work-life balance have become critical for us. I like that, um, just the, the distinction there around you know, the difference between done and good. Right. And <laughs> it's a, I, I keep thinking about this uh, conversation I keep having people like, what, what is your definition of done? But I hadn't thought about taking it a step further and be like, what would be, what would our definition of good be as a team? You know, like when it comes to, the success that we're looking at. It's thinking about feeling some sense of accomplishment and 
like are having like a knowingly like planning for some sort of release valve time away space room post-launch because sometimes release releases or especially if they're depending on your organization if those releases are really big things or you have to you maybe you're needing to put some extra hours in or need to need like just a lot of extra focus on it and some stress that comes with it because there's a lot of pressure from different places last minute changes the, the unpredictableness the things that pop up and those things that like nothing else is going to change nope one more quick thing we got to figure out right and so like oops we forgot about that those are all stressful scenarios for people not everybody excels in those environments or can keep that energy level up in the days following I'm actually just thinking about the fact that we released something earlier this week for a client and someone needed to take today off as a result. And um, we were having a conversation like, why didn't we think about that ahead of time? We knew it was going to be stressful. Why didn't we just like, instead of it being like, oh, someone's like, I feel like I need to ask for time off. Or I think, I don't know if it was like, it was, I think we were both noticing like that person seems really stressed. They need some time away. We could have, we could have easily predicted that a week or two ago. And so I like that idea. Um, so anyways, thanks for at least illuminating me enough that I can go take away that and go have some interesting conversations with my team later. So free advice for me. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, it's really uh, dynamic in the sense of, like as engineers, like we know our trigger points, right? Like we know when we've pushed ourselves past the point of uh, most times mental exhaustion, and we know when we're leading up to that. And so really, when, you, when you're incorporating a lot of methodologies in, uh, in, in your team, in your, work, in your workplace, about mental health days, about, you know, making sure that you take care of your mental wealth through, you know, if you need to talk to somebody or counseling or just venting, right? Um, whatever that is, leisure activity, getting away and playing video games with your kids or by yourself, skateboarding, exercise, whatever you want to do just to kind of, you know, unplug yourself and dull your mind. Like you say, when you're going through the process of, you know, hey, look, this is a feature that's going to be very stressful and very taxing on us. Oh, man, you know, I, I wish we would have built in these days where people could get time off. And then on the engineering side, for most engineers, especially younger engineers, they feel bad about asking for time off, which is totally not the thing that we want them to do, right? <laughs> like, it's... It's so it's 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 kind of it's kind of like that uh you know that paradox of oh I don't want you to feel bad about asking for time off but then the environment that we kind of manifest kind of leads to that where somebody feels like that and so I found that in teams that if you build those days in already then nobody has to be put you know in a position um, where they feel like oh I, I can't ask for this time off. It's interesting. I think of the idea of, especially, you know, maybe whether they're younger or just earlier in their career, um, hopefully at some point they build up that, um, oh, it is okay to do that or uh, to take time off or use my flex time. Like, what is your flex? Like, I, I think most organizations have some level of like flexibility that they want to provide. And then there's this like, well, there's also no, like a, a weird expectation on the individual to be like, you need to be an advocate for yourself because I don't know how you're feeling all the time. But on the flip side, I think teams could figure out ways to organize that, as you're saying, to plan for that so that it's not something you need to necessarily ask for. It's or at least offer it. It's like, hey, if you're interested and want to plan for that, it would. It also just helps if you can plan ahead for everybody. If you know someone's going to be needing to take a day off in a week, you know, after the launch or like right a couple of days after, then 
the other people on the team can plan for that to be like, okay, how can we cover if, you know, so you don't feel like you need to be around in those few days after or whatever. So there's that sense of ownership that people sometimes take on too, that they become, well, I'd be letting the team down if I took another, if I took a day off because I was having, uh, I was interviewing someone else recently and we're, they were talking about over time, people become kind of like the domain expert around a certain area of code. And they have a lot of ownership of that and how challenging that is for the organization because they're very reliant on that person. I've always wondered sometimes, it's like my reflecting on myself, like how often I know it's not ideal for me to be the one that keeps working on taking care of that thing. But it's like, oh, if I bring someone else into it, I'm going to have to like pass this mess over to someone because I deep down know that I'm like, this kind of, it's not, it's not well documented. It's, it's, it's kind of messy. I'm embarrassed about it. Right. I, I don't want you to think I'm just like completely worthless as a software developer. I, I know I need to go through some more stuff, clean it up. I just haven't had the time to. And that's really like the underlying reason. I don't, I think I procrastinate on things like that. But here's the thing though, that you, you're exactly right. Everything you said is exactly valid. I've been in that position before myself. And then what I started to do was, and I, I started to do this maybe like five or six years ago, five or six years ago, I, um, I just got to the point where I was like, you know what, man, I'm not going to be the only one that people DM about this thing. You know, like I'm going to force myself to bring somebody else into it. So I went to my counterpart and I started, we created an epic around me and him rubber ducking on this bit of, bit of information that I was the SME on. And during that, it helped me become a better engineer because I was able to bounce ideas off of him. It helped me out with my documentation as well, too, because I had to write it like for someone who had no clue. Right. Like a lot of times at, we give instructions, you know, somebody asks you, OK, where's the restroom? And you say, hey, go down the hall and make a right. We give instructions like that instead of writing documentation like we talk to machines. Right. Hey, OK, you need to know where the restroom is. Stand up, turn around 180 degrees, walk 15 feet to the door, turn doorknob, you know, counterclockwise, right? I got so good at documentation and dealing it out like that to where non-technical people can read it and, and felt like, oh, okay, this is perfect. Like, hey, I, I understand what's going on now. Now I actually know what's happening. And, and I wouldn't have been able to do that without me biting that bullet and saying, yeah, man, it's like, you know, it looks like a, a, a bag of cats in there, but, you know, let's dig into it <laughs> and, and, and figure it out. And, you, and it was, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, as, as engineers, we have, you know, we have feelings, you know, we're sensitive. <laughs> and, and as I was, I was saying in, um, in, a, in a podcast I did not too long ago, in my viewpoint, engineering is its own art form and each engineer is an artist. And as an artist, I'm sensitive about my shit. And so, <laughs> so I think that's where a lot of that comes in too, right? Like you're sensitive about the work because you do care what people think about, you know, um, how, you, how your art is uh, interpreted. So, but I had to get over it. Once I got over that hump, uh, now I just do it as a matter, of, as a matter of, of fact. Now I bring everybody in on the stuff that I'm doing now. Do you think that's something that we can effectively teach people or is that something like early on in their career or is that something that they kind of need to learn a little on their own like for their own scenario I'm just thinking about that kind of career growth like I know that there's things that I felt like I could have taken on ownership for a really long time 
especially when I was younger and had the maybe energy level. And as I've gotten older over the, over the years, I'm like, okay, I know this isn't as good. I don't have actually have the energy to be the person that has to be the one that responds all the time to this problem. If something comes up in this thing. So it's in my best mental health, physical health being, if I'm not the only one that knows about this and how it like works and can make changes to it and, and kind of share the ownership of it. I think sometimes it's hard for me to understand how to really help junior you know, people earlier in their career really kind of understand that because they're trying to like make, you know, make a name for themselves and trying to show initiative. Right. Uh, and that's a very great, it's a great, great question as well too. And I think that it's part, it depends on the shop you're at. Right. Like a lot of, if you think about it and, you, and if you think about in, engineers as a whole, when we're very junior, the first place we, the first kind of shop that we work at or team we work in, it's very influential in how we, you know, uh, how we grow and mature in, in our in our field, in our profession. And so if you're at a place where you see the example given from senior engineers of, hey, you know, no one here is the sole owner of anything. Yeah, we got people who are better at certain things than others. However, uh, no one here it works in a silo where they just deal with this specific piece of the code or specific piece of the infrastructure. Everybody can learn all of this stuff. And if they're in an environment where they see that happening, by example, on a regular basis, it tends to happen organically. The the I think one of the issues we have is that when we are in places where, and, and I've been at shops before, where you do kind of have that where every team member is their own kind of sheriff, right, over something, you know, to lose a loose term. They have kind of century and domain over their own thing, and people know that, hey, look, they the person to go to. If you want to talk about Puppet, this is the person you go to. If you want to talk about GitHub Actions, that's who you go to. If you want to talk about Kubernetes, you go over here. And I always feel like the methodologies and principles I bring in around DevOps and Lean and Agile really create disruption around that because – my whole thing is to get the team, everyone on this team should know a little bit about the entire ecosystem that we have. Have small G global awareness of everything. And in that way, you can take a day off. You can go take your kid to a baseball game. You can do these things because we got it covered instead of, oh, you know what, man, you know, Robbie's going to be out. So. Yeah, we can't work on this piece of the stack because he's going to be out. It's like, no, man, we need to, you know, our velocity needs to work a lot better than that. And so I think that when you when you get to the point where you're in teams like that, that have kind of embedded themselves, you do. That's when you have to become very diligent with some processes and say, OK, everybody needs a mentor. Everybody needs a mentee. Let's pair up. We'll be back with our interview with Rodney in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media and or maybe consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Do you know someone in the industry that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now let's get back to our interview with Rodney Kopp. Like, I'm always curious, like, what creates these silos? Is it because I don't feel like it's intentional sometimes? And I think I've noticed it be things like, okay, a product owner will go, 
like they know that someone worked on something recently, so they go ask that person, like, "Hey, I needed we need to make a little tweak here. You were the per last person, re, re, you know, recently worked on this area. You know, you see all these like little micro things that happen where it's like, oh, so then that product owner starts to be like, oh, like two months later, they didn't make a change to that similar area. They go back and like, hey, can I get it? You're can I talk to you about this real quick? And so then they they kind of start to like identify with that person as being the quickest way to figure something out. And then like this starts to happen throughout the team where everybody's like, oh, I can get the quickest answer. That's going to cause, if I go ask anyone in the team or like everyone in the team, this one topic, then it's going to disrupt everybody all of a sudden because it's kind of like, hey, does anybody know about this Docker thing I'm confused about? And then like everybody's, you're waiting for someone to volunteer to answer or to like sit down and pair with you. And then someone like, oh, you might ask, you know, Shannon, she's the expert on that. And you're like, okay. So then People start see that and they go, oh, I'll go to Shannon from now on. And so then over time, Shannon becomes the the expert only because people started treating her like an expert. But this starts to happen all the time, like over, you know, six to 12 months later, like everybody just goes to Shannon for that. And then it was never like intentional necessarily, but it's like these things just kind of organically happen. And I'm always curious, like how to avoid that as a, as a team, or at least say like, it's not a bad necessarily, but it can become problematic if that keeps compiling. Oh, yes, no doubt. Oh, no, and and it, as a team leader or as a manager of engineers, it's very disheartening because now my team is actually picking up. It's almost like they're picking up the kind of ad hoc work, right? Like the, the little things when it shouldn't. It shouldn't be like that. And then also, too, I can't measure that, right? Like when somebody just dips into somebody's DM and just say, hey, look, can you give me access to this? I just need it real quick. Well, you know, there's no measurement on that, but it's work still, right? And so one of the practices that we instituted uh, where I'm at now, as a matter of fact, because that was a problem very early on, is we created um, a Slack bot that connected with Jira so that anytime somebody outside the team had a question, they could just go in Slack and create a quick ticket. And then it goes onto our board and it goes into the backlog. And they can put in their estimates on expectation or finite time, when they need to have it delivered, all the things that you would put in a ticket. And we made that the standard now um, so that uh, work A can be visible because uh, one of the things that uh, you're absolutely right about what happens organically is people get, you know, they just start asking folks, right, in, in DMs or even in the office. And now that work is invisible. I, as a leader cannot see all of the effort that someone is putting into this, right? Because sometimes it's a quick thing. Oh, I just need, you know, oh, my 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 two-factor uh, off broke. Can you just reset my password or reset my off token, you know? Or it could be something related to a profile in LDAP, which takes a little bit more time. But I don't, the, the thing is, is that I don't get to see it, right? The, the team doesn't get to see it. No one gets to see it. It's not measured in any type of, you know, metric or velocity. And so um, it's work that my, you know, my team don't get credit for. So now I say, hey, look, everybody puts in a ticket. I don't care what it is. We put those tickets in. They go into the backlog. We throw them into sprints. And now we've got a kind of categorized way of what we're doing. And we were able to figure out from doing from just doing that, we were able to figure out that 70 percent, 70 percent of the requests that we get are related to permissions and roles and access. That was it. And so I was like, wow, okay, this is great. Now I know we need to actually go in and refactor how we assign permissions and roles, 
who has ability to change those roles and why we needed to do that. And once we were able to do that, then that uh, request started to tick down a lot and people were able to be freed up and do other work. I like that idea of like everything needs to be in a ticket type of thing. And like, like obviously like a lot of support teams really like kind of live by that kind of approach. So they, they, if it's not somewhere in some system, then why are we doing it? Right. And then um, as much as we also want to be helpful and just provide, you know, I think it's, I think it's hard sometimes for people to turn down those scenarios and be like, well, someone's asking me for help. I can be helpful. This seems quick enough. Right. And so it's, it's well-meaning, but then you're right. Nobody, you don't necessarily get the credit for that. It becomes invisible, especially to other people. Like I know that there's things that like my team's working on that I don't have enough visibility in to it. I don't want to micromanage them either, but it's like, well, how much did you, like this ticket's like, well, these other things popped up. Okay. Like that wasn't the plan. Right. And like, those are unplanned activities and tasks and things you took care of. And I don't want you to not get credit for it, but I also don't want to be surprised if something can't get done because of it, because you, you know, you made how to make that decision there in, in the moment. So another thing I wanted to dig in with you is, you know, you mentioned how engineering is a, is for you, you see it as like, as you're like an artist, artists have feelings, engineers have feelings and craft. So what's it, what's your take on how, you know, kind of the wider community kind of ebbs and flows, or there's differences of opinion on whether or not we should see it as a craft or not, or as just a, a tool type of thing, like this utilitarian output, like what's your, what, what, where do you, where do you kind of stand on that? Yeah, I'm much more, any, anybody that knows me, you talk to them, they'll tell you, I, I think about engineering very in a very existential manner. Uh, so for me, it is, there is a, uh, an ebb and a flow and a zen and an energy around what we do on a daily basis. And that energy can either be positive energy, it can be negative energy, it can be energy that can weigh you down as well too. However, once you get into a place where, here's a perfect example. We've all been in those situations where we've had to either grind on some code for hours during the day or hours during the night. And then what happens is inherently you get to that spot where you get that kind of groove going, that rhythm. And, you know, you really kind of plugging away and picking things apart and making things work and keeping on moving, right? And so that's what I mean about that kind of energy and that flow. Uh, and, and as an engineer, we've all been there before. We've all had that experience. And so some people may chalk it up to, oh, you know what? Mentally, you were just in a good space. For me, that is that energy that happens. And again, as an artist, it's not like uh, artistry in the sense of like, you know, you know, Michelangelo, where it's like, oh, you know, I, I the, the sculpture was already there. You know, I just pulled away the pieces. It's not like that. Like we actually have to, you know, go in and really, you know, create something. Um, however, I think that each engineer puts their own stamp on what they do. Right. Like I can look at code from engineers in my office place and I can tell you right off the bat who wrote it. Like it's not even, a, you know, we each have that kind of fingerprint, right? Where you put your fingerprint on it and I can tell you exactly who did it. And that's a good thing for me because now you get to contribute to a greater tapestry in, in you know, in the whole scheme of what we do as engineers on a daily basis and feel ownership in it and feel proud about it, about what you accomplished. So I lean much more towards the other end of we are craftsmen. 
uh, in our own way for sure. Now, you know, my craft might just revolve around ones and zeros. And uh, it might I might have to sit in one place for, you know, seven hours <laughs> to get it done. <laughs> but so do people who do pottery. Right. I, I, I don't know the exact name for the profession, but <laughs> I'm sure they do the same thing. So um, I definitely look at it as a craft. Do you you know, you're talking about how it, once engineers get into this kind of groove state of flow, what, what sort of things do you think prevent engineers from getting into that do you think we maybe exist in a world where there's too much do you feel like it's independent of like i just need to be kind of isolated for a while to work on something with my headphones on or whatever works for you because there's we're also in a very reacting disruptive environment at times where you know whether or not your team's using slack you know real-time communication like being able to have like one of the questions i can usually try to ask people on our team is like how long has it been since you've had like two or three hours of uninterrupted time to just focus on the task? And how do, how do you approach that sort of thing? Do you have some guidelines or like advice you offer your team? Yeah. So we have actually uh, in documentation. So uh, uh, those three things I talked about at the very beginning, uh, repeatable, scalable and testable for, uh, you know, great maintainable software. The overarching umbrella on top of that is transparency. And so transparency really, really, in my opinion, makes a lot of processes that we do on our team go very well. And even at other organizations where I've done it as well, too. And so one of the things that's under that transparency umbrella is, is not only transparency and documentation and code, so everybody can get to it, but also, too, in our everyday policy. So inside of this documentation, we got in there how we agile, right? And in that document, um, we list out core hours uh, so everybody knows. We list out, uh, hey, look, you will have a mental health day once a a month. We list out that um, there's heads down time. You You can have up to two hours of heads down time a day if you would so feel like. And then, you know, put it to status in your Slack and, you know, keep on going and people won't, you know, people won't mess with you. Because you, even from the sense of, even if you just want to learn something, right? So it's all about that kind of balance, that kind of scale of, okay, I'm working, working, working. When do I take the time to level up, right? And sometimes that leveling up happens organically as you're working because, you know, we, you know, we use a stack overflow and duck, duck, go, you know, every five minutes, right? Because, you know, we're digging, we're troubleshooting. Sometimes the answer isn't always, you know, on the, on in your terminal. Sometimes you got to go to, you know, Google, Stack Overflow, DuckDuckGo, like I said. And so, or in the test that you've written even, I really wanted to institute that heads down time for several reasons. One, so you could have heads down time to get some work done. But then also, too, hey, you, you want to you wanna get better. The, the first question I always ask any engineer that I've ever hired is, how can I help you get better? What do, you, what do you want me to help you get better at? Uh, and usually, you know, they give two or three answers. And so that time that they have heads down with, they ask me a question. I'm like, hey, here's some, you know, literature that I've written. I mean, that I've wrote, uh, read. Here also is um, some examples and some tutorials that I've been through. You know, ask me any question about this. Oh, you need to talk to, you know, you you saw a video on, on Gene Kim. Okay, hey, me and him are friends on LinkedIn. Let me connect you guys together. Ask him a question. Ask him a point. And then, you know, 
now we're not only enhancing that one engineer, but we're making the team a lot better as well, too. I like that um, that point about even introdu- helping facilitate introduction, introducing people to people maybe outside of your organization as well. Like I was just just yesterday, I saw someone ask something on Slack, and I'm like, I don't remember like that. And so I started finding myself googling a little bit to see if I could find something that they, I'm like, they're probably googling too. And I'm like, I had this thought. I'm like, ooh, I wonder if I should introduce them to someone that I know at another company that I know has more experience there. Maybe they could chat for 30 minutes, and it would be a good a good introduction, right? And then I'm like, well, do you actually? That's an interesting thing. Do you find that people on your team are you're able to help them, or they they already kind of come with a good network of people that they can kind of share ideas with or do you feel like you have to kind of like do you feel a little confused why that's not like intrinsically somehow something that they do because I think I'm assuming that you are someone that has done that because I know that I'm someone that has definitely relied on people in the community I've fostered those relationships I have podcasts I talk with people like this all the time so it's just more of a comes naturally to me and other people are like well I you know they 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 want to figure things out themselves and or I'm like why don't you understand there's a community out there you can probably ask and get someone more than what just the team that we've been able to assemble what's your take on that I think it's kind of twofold right so you have you do have individuals who engineers who come on and they might be junior they might be early on in their career so maybe they don't have a lot of connections they may have that paradigm of you know what I really want to figure this out for myself. I really want to get it. And I understand that kind of impulse. Uh, and it's okay to have that impulse. The thing that I often sit sit down with them and talk to them about is just because you bring in a mentor, a friend, or somebody to help you out move along in this process, it doesn't mean you didn't do it yourself. All it means is that you had you are accepting of pluralistic thought. Right. So when we talk about like diversity and inclusion in, in, the, in our space, um, a lot of times I pull it back and break it down to acceptance of pluralistic thought. Right. Because me and you may look at a piece of code and you may have a different way of how to refactor it and debug it than I do. It doesn't mean either one is wrong. It don't mean either one is better. It's just that we coming from two different backgrounds and two different ways of solving for in. Right. By saying to younger engineers or, or engineers earlier in their career, saying, hey, you know, it's OK to go get the help. You're still going to do the work. But now you're getting different ways in which to solve for that problem. Right. And you can come up with your own. Some of the best stuff I've written has come from me rubber ducking with somebody on a piece of code and then stepping back and saying, oh, you know what? Well, since they had this idea and I had this idea, what if I do this? And just trying stuff out, right? Like that's the fun part of the job. The fun part of the job is when you can sit back and you know, you're testing stuff out and it actually, you know, it actually it actually works. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you know, usually we're like, oh damn, that works. <laughs> Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com slash referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. 
That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. Another thing I wanted to talk a little bit with you about was around DevOps in particular. And so how do you believe DevOps is changing, say, our our understanding and our approaches to software development as, you know, as that's become a prevalent um, aspect of the software delivery process in the the industry? Right. Great question. So I, so I'm going to make this correlation. Don't laugh at me, but (laughs) it, 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 follow me along on this. Just, just, just go down this road with me. So. I remember I first got introduced to DevOps methodologies and principles around 2012, right? So, you know, around 2011, 2012 is when DevOps first got its name from like Gene Kim, Werner Wogels, people like that, right? And at first, if you remember, it was kind of like, ooh, you know, like you could only kind of whisper it, you know, because people felt like, oh, you know, you're going to be getting rid of jobs. You know, people are not, people are going to be losing, you know, all these sysadmins are going to lose their position. You know, all of these other, yeah, yeah. All of these other developers, they're all going to lose their jobs. And, and the the response from the very beginning was, and still is, nobody's losing their job. You're actually enhancing yourself and making yourself a better engineer. And also too, you're making your job a lot easier, right? And we, we're producing we're producing great products at a quicker velocity, failing quicker, you know, big, uh, failing big a quicker, right? So we can figure out stuff. And so it was unpopular, right? So I always make this parallel between DevOps methodologies and hip hop culture. So hip hop culture, when it first came out, it was unpopular. Like people didn't really want to even deal with it, right? Like you were young, you did, but the status quo did not, right? Uh, definitely not anybody in kind of, you know, uh, um, a, uh, a formal position. Nobody really liked hip hop culture. And then you started to see slowly but surely people start accepting it more and more. And then it became commodified. Right. So now hip hop is the dominant culture all over the world, everywhere. You can't go to a basketball game or a movie theater or anything without hearing, you know, this culture be embedded. Right. And I'm not just talking about music. I'm talking about fashion part, I'm talking about, you know, DJing, you know, uh, dancing. And so uh, DevOps has kind of really kind of taken that same similar course where now people are starting to commodify on it and starting to write books and starting to sell workshops and, you know, uh, knowledge bases. And so now it's becoming more of the popular culture now. But at its core, just like hip hop was and still is to a certain extent, is disruption, right? Like it is it is a disruptive methodology and practice that you bring in because you're actually saying no. uh, The example I gave before, no, you don't DM somebody to ask them, can they get you, you know, can they reset your password? Make a ticket for it. We'll create it as a task or a bug and then we'll get to it. Right. And people are like, no, but, you know, I always go to Sally. Sally always does this for me. (laughs) And it's like, okay, Sally may still do it. However, we're going to document it right now, right? So that disruption, I think, um, in my opinion, is still very much there. And you still have individuals who still push it. Organizations, I apologize. You still have organizations 
that still push against it because it is very disruptive and they're used to doing things the way that they, you know, they've always done them. I like that. That's an interesting kind of comp- comparison there and just thinking about as it's become more commoditized and it's, it's, it's interesting. There's some aspects to, to DevOps that I don't feel like I fully wrap my head around and I keep questioning. I'm like, well, am I spending enough time in that's in that area to to up my own skill set in some of those levels, but I'm also not coding as often as I used to like a decade ago. And so it's interesting like how the, the shift has changed. I'm like, oh, I didn't keep up in some ways, but it's also like, well, my team is trying to keep up on that stuff and that's great. And so I'm trying to like let, they can keep moving that torch on. And I'm hoping I'm not just the curmudgeon over here being like, I don't understand this hip hop thing. Um, so I don't, so <laughs> I, I really hope that I'm not. So I like that. Yes. Let's have a couple of quick other questions I want to touch on with you before we wrap up and, you know, kind of related to just thinking about, let's imagine there's a few software developers that are listening to this episode, hopefully for my sake, for my own confidence level. And like why I'm hoping we're having a conversation with more than just ourselves. But if it's just you and me, Rodney, this has been delightful. So, but they've been at their company for a few years now and they don't feel like their concerns about say long-term maintainability and processes, um, are being heard by leadership or by the product team. Perhaps they've tried a few times to advocate for refactoring areas of the code, improving the test suite, improving the uh, deployment time. And they've heard, not right now, a few times and started translating that as, we're never going to do it. And so they stopped asking. Um, And so they started thinking, well, I guess the solution for me is going to be maybe looking for a new job. Because I'll go, the grass is greener somewhere else. They'll have their shit together and we'll go work there and things will be better. Do you have any advice on how they could, the individual contributor, engineer, DevOps person could start influencing those conversations within in a more, maybe a more effective way than maybe they had tried in the past? Right. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there, there's obviously kind of several different paths you can take there. And I've been in, I've been in that scenario myself before. The first thing is a recognizing, okay, like you said in the example you gave about refactoring code, about you know, hey, look, we want to make sure this uh, our software is sustainable and actually we can scale because uh, a lot of times we we don't even think about scale, we just think about oh, let me just get this thing done right now, and I'm like, well, we can't repeat it, like we can't, like we, this is not replicable. We 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 need to turn widgets out, you know, a thousand. We don't need to just do one or two. When you come to that point. Usually a good way is having metrics, right? So whenever an engineer comes in and says, oh, I don't feel like, you know, we're doing this correctly or I don't like this tool. It's always like, well, okay, it's cool that you don't like it. That's fine. You can have those feelings. However, you need to have some metrics to say why, what informs you not feeling this way other than just your feeling? Because then it just comes off as you kind of just being, you know, selfish and you just, I just wanted everything done my way. And so in that scenario, I would say, hey, get metrics together and show and say, hey, you know, we can improve if we refactor here and here. If we change this deployment process, if we move this integration test over here, we can improve our deployment by this time. We can improve rollbacks like this. Every time I have been in that situation where I needed to do that, I've always just gathered some metrics, done some tests. And then presented them to the powers that be into the larger group just to say, hey, you know, if you guys have a different idea, I'm not married to it. But if you do have a different idea, let's get everybody's input and then let's go from there. 
And majority of the time, that has been successful. Now, it's a double-edged sword, too, because once you do that, somebody's probably going to say, oh, well, then now you own it, right? So you got So be careful. I've stuck my foot in my mouth a couple times doing that <laughs> and had to build out things that I had no clue that I was going to be building out. And then the second, uh, it, it, so like I said, majority of the time, that, that, that scenario works, right? Like I probably say seven out of 10 times I've had success doing that. Now you got those three, they're not going to change. <laughs> and, and so if it does come to that point where you say to yourself, okay, you know what? This is really isn't the shop for me. I need to go somewhere else. I need to, you know, start looking in other places then. Okay, that's cool too. But also to be very professional about it, right? If you're saying, hey, I need to leave this team because of these set of reasons, document those reasons down. You know, write them, even if you just write them in a note and email them to yourself or just write them in notes that you keep for yourself, or you want to share with somebody on Slack and say, hey, you know, these are the things that I'm thinking about doing because I want to leave. Because now, and then as you go through your process of your job search and you do actually want to move on. But now you have some documentation that, A, you can give to, you know, employer that you leave in and say, hey, you know, I wrote all these things down and I made these things aware. And so, you know, it's just not me just doing this on the fly. Right. So it helps them out. But then also, too, helps 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 the employer out and managers out in the sense of, OK, and not now the exit interview can be kind of quick. I don't need to necessarily delve too deeply into a bunch of stuff, right? Um, so it helps out everybody on both ends. But sometimes you, you know, you gotta go. Yeah, I get that. See, I like that idea of you know documenting it in the moment while while it's fresh uh, and be able to like also the the encouragement or, or at least the, the advice on providing some tangible metrics to go along with it, so that you can kind of convey the business value of why this is important. It's like, I don't want to just keep having to work around this technical debt or what have you, because it's, it's causing friction and I don't like to feel this way every time I have to work on this thing. As you're saying, there's, there's more to it than just the emotional aspect to it. So with that, is, is Remind hiring at the moment? Uh, right now we are hiring for a couple of positions. Yes. I don't know exactly which ones they are, but we are hiring for a couple of positions. Yes. Okay. Well, I'll include a link to the, uh, your careers or job site or page on your website. Um, is there a non-software development book that you find yourself recommending to people on a regular basis? Maybe like a non-technical, something that you wouldn't find in the computer science programming section of a, of a bookstore. Like it's in a different area of the bookstore. Well, I mean, I, I read so many books. I would say that the one, I would probably say the one that I enjoy now um, is a book on influencers, on how to be a great influencer. Um, and really, it really, it's really talking about those networking skills we were talking about before, talking about how to not only, I won't say master, but become a lot better at those networking skills. And also, too, a lot better at being a a teammate, um, a better leader, a better uh, mentor in your workplace, in your everyday life as well, too. I, I'll send you the title and stuff, too, too. But it's very, very good. And especially for individuals in a space in which we may not be as, you know, um, as extroverted and as, you know, socially mobile as most people are, you know, um, it, it's very good for that. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations on DevOps and software engineering online? 
Oh yeah, I'm uh yeah uh, uh on Twitter I'm uh, Face the Wrath on Twitter. Um, I can send you the link for that, and then I'm on Instagram as well too. Um, and I forget my username on there. Um, but also LinkedIn is probably the best place. All right, great. Well, it's just Rodney.com on LinkedIn. Yeah, that's probably the best place. I'll include uh, links for everybody in the show notes for that. And with that, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable Rodney. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. Thanks a lot uh, too, Robbie. I truly appreciate it. Great conversation. I hope uh, that uh, some engineers can get some really good, you know, information and skill sets from our conversation.